All right, good morning. So if you don't have a Bible, by the way, um, if, if you're new here, you, you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available. Um, they're up in the front, they're in the back, they're um, kind of all over the place. You can grab one, and if, if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to, um, to take it and make that um, your Bible. We're going to be continuing in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Jesus' first great block of teaching. It happens right after, uh, or excuse me, right at the beginning of, of his ministry. And we are going to pick up this morning in the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. And we are going to engage with what is known as, what is probably one of the most well-known sections of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least uh, one of the most recited sections of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There are many sections in the Sermon on the Mount that are well-known, but I believe that this is one of the um, most well-known sections because it is quoted by both Christians and non-Christians alike. This section has been, or at least especially the first couple of uh, words, have been used and abused by and against the church for many years. Um, You may have heard this verse used as a way to dismiss any sort of religious talk by someone who is not a Christian. I am sure there have been um, many Thanksgiving meals uh, where conversations have been sparked and promptly ended with, Jesus said not to judge. Or maybe... You've experienced, uh, you've experienced with this passage a well-intentioned brother or sister who tries to um, lovingly encourage or challenge you or someone in their faith, and this passage has been used to escape any sort of accountability. Jesus said not to judge. And what about those who have used this passage to condemn others? Or, ironically, use verse 5 when it talks about taking the speck out of a brother's eye as a tool for holding someone accountable uh, when all they're doing is playing the role of morality police in someone's life. Um, If you've been guilty of any of those, know that you're not alone. Um, I think we can all honestly say here, with best of intentions, we have probably misused um, this passage. I want to pray before we even dive into this passage this morning that Jesus' words would, would reign supreme this morning. I want to pray that what we would read, what we would hear, would be um, God calling us and exhorting us to holiness. I have to be honest, this is a, a passage that I am really, really nervous about preaching um, because this is a sin that I, I struggle with all the time. Um, It is one before I became a Christian, I was an incredibly judgmental person. As a Christian, I wrestle with it, and so I have to constantly be checking my heart. And so my prayer this morning is that there would not be any sort of irony in how I approach this, because we can approach the topic of not judging others in a judgmental way, right? (laughs) There's there's a little bit of a a circle that can happen. So let's pray uh, that God would guide us um, in his word this morning. Lord, thank you for 
your text. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your work. God, though our flesh is weak, you are strong. You reign supreme and you are sovereign. God, we pray that you would help transform us and mold us to look more like you, that you would help us to love those around us better, that you would help us to love those as you have called us to love those. God, that any sort of critical thinking or, or criticism would come nothing more than from a heart of repentance and confession. God, that we would humbly come before you recognizing our brokenness, our sin, and our desires to be you. God, that you'd help us to lay them aside and to recognize you as king and, and to guide us in this walk. You are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we are rounding into this last section on the Sermon on the Mount, I am, I am struck by um, this consistent theme um, in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, and as even we're heading into chapter 7, that there's this consistent theme, and that is our need to confess and repent of our self-righteousness. There is no self-righteousness found in the Beatitudes in chapter 5, 1 through 11. There is no self-righteousness to be found in the life of a Christian when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and telling us how to better understand his law. There's definitely no self-righteousness found in the Lord's prayers. We humbly go before him and we plea before him, your kingdom come, your will be done. There's no self-righteousness to be found as we seek out the Lord in, in fasting. When we seek our treasures and our confidence, it is not within our own righteousness, but within his righteousness. I don't say all this because I think the Sermon on the Mount is a beatdown. I actually think it's the opposite. I think what Jesus is doing is he is drawing out our self-righteousness so that we would rely more and more on his righteousness, on the righteousness that is given to us by our Creator. It is a constant readjustment of our gaze. We are not to have our eyes adjusted on ourselves, but rather our eyes set upon our Creator, our King, our God. This theme continues through Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you may not be judged. Jesus states this in verse 1. But before we even unpack any of this section, I, I, I want to define terms a little bit. I think that that's really important. I want to ask the question, what does it mean to judge? When he's saying don't judge, what does that mean? And I think it's this. I think that it means that there is a standard and then there is an upholding of that standard. There's an expectation, a standard, and then there is a holding of that standard, right? I will, um, I'll give an example, right? Um, September 2012, if you'll rewind with me for just a moment, the Green Bay Packers, you know, it's dangerous whenever I bring up the Packers. All right, uh, the Green Bay Packers were playing the Seattle Seahawks. What's interesting to me, by the way, as a self-admitted Chicago Bears fan, that, that prior to this time, I don't remember there being a fierce rivalry with the Seattle Seahawks. 
Um, but I definitely remember it after the years after this game. So anyways, the Packers are up 12 to 7. The Seattle Seahawks have the football. It is fourth and 10 on like the 26-yard line. Uh, Russell Wilson in his first year takes the ball, goes back. He throws the football up in a Hail Mary. There's five Packers in the end zone. There's two Seattle Seahawks in the end zone. They all go up for the football. And what it looks like is like the Packers intercepted the football and the game was over. But there's two referees in the end zone. One saying the game is over, and the other one puts his hands up for a touchdown. And everybody's like, what is going on? And so they gather together, they have further review, and the referee comes out on the field, and they call it a touchdown. The Seattle Seahawks won the football game. And ever since then, the Packer fans have not been happy whenever they play the Seattle Seahawks. They call this infamous play the Fail Mary. I don't know if anyone remembers it, uh, but it was very well known, the Fail Mary. There were a lot of people that were really upset with that call. Why? Because there was a standard. There was a standard that was set. This is what happens when someone catches the ball or when somebody comes down with it, and then there was somebody who was set to uphold that standard. Do you want to be the person that holds that standard? I cannot imagine it's easy for that referee to step anywhere near Green Bay after <laughs> that game. And I share that because I think that is kind of the framework we need to work around when we're thinking about judge not that you may not be judged. There is a standard. God calls humanity to a standard. You be holy as I am holy. And there is one who gets to uphold that standard. So as we walk into these verses, I want us to think about it in that way. So we're going to break up this section into three sections. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to talk about it being the command. Verses 3 through 5 are going to be the illustration of that command. And then verse 6 is going to be a warning and what I would also call a bit of an encouragement. So um, Matthew 7, 1 through 2, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be judged uh, it will be measured to you. In other words, do not be the one who holds the, holds the others to a standard lest you be held to that standard. Jesus furthermore says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, actually unpacks a little bit on this. He says, and this is the uh, NIV translation, so if it looks a little bit different than your Bibles, that's why. Um, but it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same thing. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? I think we can all agree that the creator of the universe is the one who has the right to decide the measurement by which we are going to be held. There is a standard that was set for humanity. And there is one who determines how that standard is going to be upheld. God, in the beginning, created, and it was good the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. He created in his image. He gave his creation life and purpose. 
And with this creation, he specifically told them not to eat from a particular tree. And in the arrogance of the creation, they, man and woman, ate from the tree and brought sin and death into this world. The standard was set. It was not met. And because of that, judgment was brought into this world. In arrogance, Adam and Eve decided that they were to be the ones who would set and hold the standard. And the world has felt the effects of sin ever since. At its core, it was and is idolatry. It is idolatry when we put on the robes of judge and expect to be the ones to hold the standard. And what is idolatry? I love the way the New City Catechism defines idolatry. This is something, by the way, that we reference back um, within the youth ministry is the New City Catechism. They have 52 questions, one for each week of the year, that define and explain uh, what we believe. So I think we have a slide, actually, for um, this question. And it just says this. It's always question and answer. What is idolatry? Answer, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, for our significance and security. When we assume the role that is reserved for God, we begin to trust in created things. We begin to trust in ourselves for our hope, our happiness, our significance, our security, rather than God. And when we judge others, we do the same. We judge them based upon the same measurement because ultimately, even though we deceive ourselves into thinking it, we are not the judge. God is. We cannot be quick to forget that our salvation, our hope, our significance was not saved due to anything you did, not to any law or any morality you upheld, but it was by the grace of God. In writing a letter to the church in Galatia, um, Paul speaks speak specifically about this to the church. Um, in the beginning, Galatians 1, 6-7 says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He goes on to further unpack this then in Galatians chapter 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We cannot hold anyone to any sort of standard or any sort of judgment than that which we ourselves have been held up to. You be holy as I am holy. That's the standard. Can anyone in here 
claim to have lived up to that standard. We have failed to live to that standard at every, tur- every turn. And the consequence is plain, it's death. The penalty, however, that you don't have to pay. The penalty that Jesus paid. In turn, we don't give law to those around us, but gospel. Why are we surprised when broken people do broken things? Why are we surprised when sinful people do sinful things? The answer is not stop doing broken things, stop doing sinful things. The answer is to point them to Jesus, who by his grace does a good work in them to begin mending those broken things. It is Jesus that begins that work. I want to be careful, though, to make sure that I'm not painting a picture that says what you do or don't do doesn't matter because it's actually quite the opposite. The call to think critically about how we and others live is important, but it's within the proper context. I love, as I was studying this passage, um, I came across a commentary by, um, by John Stott. He is an Anglican priest and theologian, and he had a great commentary on the passage. I think we have a slide for it. Let's see. Yeah, awesome. The command to judge is not a requirement. Uh, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men or humanity by suspending our critical powers, which help distinguish from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judge. It is so important that we have a gospel-centered approach to hearing this message and to hear these verses. So Jesus goes on to illustrate then a little bit of um, what self-righteousness on display looks like. So we're going to continue on, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus does not hold back on his proclamation of those who would presume to be judge over others. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. The unfortunate reality is that This often comes from those who claim to be religious. In Jesus' time, of course, this came from the religious elites, the Pharisees, and those who claim to be righteous and claim to be holy. But all of that righteousness, all of that holiness came from their actions, from their words, from their understanding of Scripture. If you were here when we went through some of the earlier passages of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through a number of times. He says, You have heard it was said, but I have told you. It was scripture being twisted to mean something the self-righteous wanted it to mean, not what the Lord had actually commanded. I mean, there were those who were justifying their inward anger towards a brother or sister, claiming it to be righteous and holy. And Jesus goes, No, you are committing murder against them. You are committing murder in your hearts against them. 
The self-righteousness rots the heart from the inside out. And here's the thing. Self-righteousness today, it feels like, at least to me, it is, com- it is completely accepted. You do you. Find your truth. But not only is it accepted, it's encouraged. Not only is it encouraged, it's encouraged to be broadcasted to the masses. Internet, smartphone, the advent of social media have made it easier than ever for us to not only be fulfilled in our self-righteousness, but then to go on and celebrate it, to, to, to send it out. We end up creating these echo chambers where our self-righteousness is not only promoted, but it's celebrated. And then when anyone would have any sort of audacity to step within that echo chamber and disagree with you, the heart just goes nuclear. I mean, over the past few years, I have watched people be completely dehumanized. And when I say dehumanized, what I mean to say is this. Um, We believe that God created people in his image. And when we remove people from that, when we remove the image of God from people, we dehumanize them. What has happened is that people end up becoming completely dehumanized over things that are not even explicitly stated in Scripture. So I'm talking specifically about Christians here, right? I'm talking about... um, you go online and you see people that are just tearing apart over things that are not even in God's word. Sometimes they they tear apart over secondary theological issues, political issues, how and where families should school their kids, medical issues. Dare I even say the word masks. I know. Careful. And listen, I'm not saying all those things aren't important. I'm not saying they're not important. But what I'm saying is is when we dehumanize other people in order to make these things gospel issues, we are taking the position that God has reserved for himself. So the question then is, how do we guard ourselves against this hypocrisy? How do we guard ourselves against self-righteousness and the same pitfalls of the religious elite of that day? The awesome part is Jesus gives us an answer. In in verse 5, take the log out of your own eye. It's confession. It's repentance. The word confession can have a lot of baggage and tied into it, but here's the thing. The Christian walk needs to be marked with confession. It needs to be submerged in confession. Let's define those two terms really quick. Repentance means to turn away from something and turn towards something else. When we say to repent from our sins, it does not mean to just stop doing something. It means you are making a full stop and you are turning towards Christ. If all we do is just make a a 180 and then we stop, our sin is right behind us, waiting there, lurking. 
The call is to pursue Christ. The call is to turn towards Christ. When we talk about confession, we are talking about the action of verbalizing or articulating a truth. In this specific case, we are talking about the truth of our brokenness, our sin, confessing our sin. The Christian walk needs to daily be saturated in confession. Because here's the truth, the moment you recognized your sin, the moment the Spirit worked inside of you to feel the brokenness of your sin, you repented and turned towards Christ, you were forgiven. You were forgiven past, present, and future. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14 says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Amen? Oh, praise God. The price was paid. The price was paid. We walk in confidence knowing that the price was paid when Jesus took our sin to the cross. However, we are, as the famous hymn says, prone to wander. We are prone in our arrogance to take the greatest thing in life that has ever happened to us, our salvation, our forgiveness. We are prone to take it and turn it and turn him into a tool for self-righteousness rather than giving God the glory. It is so necessary for us to be in the practice of confession. And And I'm not just talking generalized confession where we where we recognize that there is sin and then we move on i'm saying specifically asking that the lord would reveal in us where we are broken how we have sinned against him how we have sinned against others asking him to reveal that and then when he does reveal it to give it to him and the beautiful thing is that God is faithful to forgive, right? 1 John 1, 8 through 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not within us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He's faithful to forgive. But we need to be in a daily practice of confession. And I think it's really telling that Jesus uses specks and logs to describe our sins over the sins of others. Any sort of criticism of the world or others should be preceded with a complete lifestyle of confession and repentance. And then that brings us into the second half of verse 5, right? Which is an interesting turn in this illustration because um, if you're thinking about it in terms of judging, you're thinking of two parties, right? You're thinking of the party being judged and you're thinking of the one who is judging. And for the first five and a half verses, we're talking about the one who is judging. But all of a sudden, it takes a little bit of a turn and it talks about the one being judged. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, this whole time we have been hammering on self-righteousness and the absolute necessity of confession. But what about the brother or sister who has done those things? What about the brother and sister who has stumbled, is stumbling? They're struggling, they're not even aware of it. If confession and repentance is important for the Christian walk, then accountability is important as well. 
we need to be accountable to each other. If we are going to continue to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness, if we are going to continue to have a confessional and repentant heart, then we also need to be willing to be held accountable. My question is this, what if in your prayer for your sin to be revealed, the Lord decides to do it through a brother or sister? What is your heart posture when someone comes up to you and says, like, hey, I, I, I think the way that you've been speaking on social media has been pretty damaging. How are you going to take that? There's, there's a great example in Scripture of this. Second Samuel 11, we read about the destructive sin of King David. And of course, we look to David in the Old Testament for his courage and his leadership. His battle with Goliath was awesome. But when he stumbles, he stumbles hard in 2 Samuel 11. While his army, the Israelites, were off to war, David is back home. And while he is back home, he sees a woman bathing. He sends for her. He has an affair with her. She becomes pregnant. And in an effort to cover it up, the woman's, he sends the woman's husband to the front lines to be killed. Absolutely atrocious. It's awful. Now, Nathan, a prophet, knew about this, God revealed it to him, and he was being tasked with holding David accountable. Think about it. David went so far as to cover up the sin that he had the woman's husband killed. I cannot imagine being Nathan in that moment. However, Nathan is faithful to God's prompting in 2 Samuel 12. He's faithful to hold David accountable. And what is David's response? I have sinned against the Lord. We have a full psalm dedicated to um, David's repentance and, and confession. And I want to be careful because I am not by any means trying to herald or glorify David's sin. What we oftentimes do is we kind of skip over that part and we're like, oh, look at how awesome he repented and how awesome he confessed. It was horrible. However, he did take the accountability. He did repent. Look at these verses, Psalm 51. And I'm going to skip around a little bit through Psalm 51, um, but I would encourage you maybe this week, uh, maybe this week reading 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then to read all of, second, of, of Psalm 51. Um, but verses 1 through 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me, this is uh, verse 10 through 12, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. Are you so proud as to be above rebuke? Do you have those in your life today who would be willing to call out any sin that you may have? 
do you recognize that right now you may have sin that you are not even aware of? I just want to make sure we are being careful not to say that what Jesus is saying here is it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. Don't judge others. Now we need each other, church. Jesus doesn't remove the standard. He doesn't remove the standard. In fact, a lot of times he actually raises the standard. He raises the standard. He recognizes that we can't meet the standard. He pays the price for us. But then what happens is he sends his spirit. He enables us to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. The world desperately needs the gospel. There is so much brokenness. And it is not going to come from any other gospel than that of Jesus Christ. It will not come from a gospel of works. It will not come from a gospel of a political party. It will come solely from Jesus Christ. His life, burial, resurrection. Finishing out his section, by the way. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Those in the world desperately needs the good news of Jesus. And as you pursue holiness, as you repent of self-righteousness and you lean solely on the righteousness of Jesus and his work, you are going to, or at least you should, naturally begin to pour out this gospel truth onto others. A glass will spill what it contains. This is what we are called to do and this is who we are called to be. But just like we are not saved by our works, we cannot force others to see their sin and their need for a Savior. What Jesus is telling us here is not to somehow avoid sharing the gospel with those who do not know him. But rather, I think what is happening here is Jesus is reminding us that the work of the Holy Spirit is not meant to be your work. You're meant to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. There are some of you in here who desperately want to see friends or family members come to know the gospel. And it has come to a point, though, that anytime you bring up Jesus, it is met with hostility. You feel defeated. My question is this, who are you trusting? Continue to pray for them. Continue to love them. Continue to be a light in their lives. But you cannot save them. Only Jesus can. I want to wrap this up. You are not God. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I am not God. You are not God. That is good. It's good news. You do not get to hold someone else to the standard that God has determined because we have all failed at that. We have all failed. We are all sinners. And if we have any sort of taste of forgiveness, if we have any sort of salvation, it is because of the work Jesus did. It is because the price Jesus paid on the cross. It is because he rose from the grave, he conquered death, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
It is by grace alone you have been saved. Church, let us run from self-righteousness and let us rest in the righteousness of God. In that same vein, let us be open to accountability. We need each other. Scripture says we, the church, we are his temple. He dwells within us. We are his body. We need each other. If we are going to be God's hand and feet here on earth, we need to be willing to receive gracious accountability. We need to grow together, church. It is all, all for the pursuit of our God who is good and gracious. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for anyone who feels the sting of self-righteousness. Lord, I know that even as I am reading through this passage, even as I'm getting the opportunity to preach this morning, I I feel like my sin is on display in my self-righteousness. God, I rest knowing that you have forgiven me. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who is feeling that, that you would remind them that they are forgiven, that they are loved. God, I pray that you would help us to see your righteousness clearly. God, I pray that you would help us to be a church who encourages one another, who loves one another. God, I pray that we would be a church that is willing to have difficult conversations with one another, but that it would all be for you and your goodness. And God, I pray that as you do that work within us, that you would use us to love our communities well. I pray that Menominee, Marinette, Peshtigo, Krivitz, Coleman, Lena, Okano, Wasaki, just all these surrounding areas. God, I pray that your gospel would be felt, your gospel would be heard, and God, that you would use us to do that. Thank you. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.